Welcome to another episode of One Vision. Now, today we host Noel Silver, VP of Tech at NPR, founder of AI Leadership Institute and the founder of Women in AI. Um, Noel, so it's great to see you, well, at least virtually, um, since we can't meet in person anymore. But um, you have a very, very long and interesting journey in tech. Um, you've worked on a lot of different stuff, um, especially with regards to something that we both enjoy, AI and voice technology. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, what brought you here? And more interestingly, how did you end up in NPR? It's a little bit different than like a lot of the other tech companies that you've been in. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's it's kind of nice. I, I, I did everything that I always thought I would do, which is go after kind of big tech companies and set up my career. I mean, I did, I did now looking back on it, I was very deliberate in my choices of who I wanted to work for. Um, you know, sometimes you can get into a place where you're like, oh my gosh, anything will do. And I was in pretty desperate times um, where I maybe could have gone there, but I was always very deliberate in the types of roles that I wanted. Um, and I took chances on roles that I didn't know if I'd be good at, but because I was attracted to them or I thought like, oh my gosh, that would be fun. I would go after and that's hurt me and helped me. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, you know, started off at IBM and I was there a really long time. It was, it taught me, how, you know, that's where I learned how to code. It's where back then it was, dare I say, Y2K. And so companies kind of like probably maybe before where we are now, but, um, around data science where people are willing to hire you based on your aptitude and then they'll train you to become an expert in a specific area of data science or machine learning or data engineering. It was kind of like that in Y2K where they were like, it doesn't matter as long as you say you're willing to learn or say you're capable, we'll train you. And so that's what happened. IBM trained me on a bunch of technology I be eventually became an expert for. And I just followed that path as companies came to me and they said, we would like you to sprinkle your Noel dust on our thing. <laughs> <laughs> do what you did for IBM for us here at Red Hat and then do what you did for Red Hat for me over here at VMware and Pivotal and do the same thing that you did at Pivotal at AWS. It just was constant evolution um, in scope and size of company. Um, and I went to Amazon and, and many of us probably have heard stories about what it's like to work at Amazon. I actually loved every second of Amazon, my Amazon life. I bled orange, as they say. You know, I was just like... I was already a full embodiment of like those leadership principles that they have. And so I was just like, this is my home. I love these people. Um, and then, you know, as things happen, I got into an organization that wasn't truly aligned with my values and my um, kind of beliefs. And I do have enough self-awareness to know that I can't survive in that place very long. And so I started at that point to be open to conversation uh, to Microsoft continue that evolution. Now, instead of just Alexa and NLU, I was looking at all models, computer vision models, text analytics models, and just expanding my view of the world. And that's when I met you, actually, was when I was um, at Microsoft and able to really provide this much more holistic view of the world of not just this siloed, here's my view of the world as an IBMer or as an Amazonian or as someone at Microsoft, but really as someone who's been in all of these places and what that technology looks like. And now I'm at a point in my career where I just was like, I want to feel good about the work that I do and I want to make an impact. And being in a big company with hundreds of thousands of people 
it's hard to really see the needle move based on, even if you're moving big needles. I mean, I drove like 600 in revenue one year and even that like was not noticeable, right? Like it was noticeable to those people, like the very small group of people I touched, but I wanted to do something bigger and that's where NPR came in. So I, uh, when I got actually an email from um, Hawa, uh, she's one of the, she was actually recently, um, I think she shared the stage when we were at Voice Summit last year and it was really cool. She sent me an email and she's like, please send this to your network. And I was like, <laughs> wait a second, I think I could do this. Um, I think I might like it. And so it was, it was nice to be able to use relationships that I built at Alexa to actually find a driven organization that I could be proud to be part of. And now in this state, I'm so glad I came to a company that I can you know, I really can use my people skills, my soft skills, as well as my technical skills to really make a difference um, because news has become super important to the world. And so it's nice to be part of that. So, so let's dive into that a little bit. Um, you've been at really big companies, like you said, and, and I remember seeing you on stage at Voice last year and just thinking about this presence in the space. You know, we need more Noels in the world. Huh? Yes. <laughs> we need more people that are finding those silver linings. So so I read in one of your, your bios that you're passionate about this mindful leadership, um, which in the bio was described as a work-life harmony, empowering people to achieve their potential through technology. Sounds very sort of Silicon Valley. Um, but let's, I want to talk about this. So like we're relying on technology so much right now. And in your role, you're talking about the importance of both news and perspective. And I, I kind of kind of miss, you know, a, a old commute that I had when I was in the car listening to NPR probably a couple hours a day. Um, what is it about technology and this work-life harmony and how do we achieve that balance? How are you achieving that balance right now? Yes, I also, I think I remember tweeting recently about just how... I miss you commute, you know, because that was my time when I could learn more and, um, you know, absorb things that were not specifically, um, you know, professional in nature. And so what I, I have a very strong practice of mindfulness, meditation, sitting in the silence. Uh, all of those are the same word for just being away, um, you know, taking myself away from my children, my dad who lives with me, who's got some cognitive issues. Um, my, you know, my children, my, my oldest son has Down syndrome, which being quarantined is not an awesome life for somebody who is, you know, like he's going to sit on the couch and watch YouTube all day. Like that is not a good life. <laughs> um, and he will, but I, it's my job to do more for him. And so I'm being pulled in all of these very, uh, like almost opposing directions. And so what I've done now is I wake up at 4.30 every day um, and I don't set an alarm. So that's the other good thing. I, I've got a really keen sense of my personal clock. Uh, and so I set an intention to wake up. You know, when I go to bed, I'm like, I'd like to wake up at 4.30 and I want to be able to do these things. I make a mental note of what I'd like to be able to accomplish in my first hour upon waking so that when I'm sleeping, my subconscious can kind of figure out how I'm going to get that done. But I wake up at around 4.30, but either way, it's before my children wake up. And this is my coveted time. So I have a very prescriptive, I call it like my morning routine. Some people, there's a book called Miracle Morning that kind of anchored some of these concepts for me. Um, but it basically is like this 
anchor of, you know, an acronym or a series of steps. For me, it's like I spend, you know, 20 minutes exercising. I hop, I have a Peloton and I love it. And it is like my reprieve and I hop on it and I love, there's some instructors, I've got three that I, I really um, resonate with, but they literally are like, you're a boss and you could do whatever you want. And it's your mindset that matters and that we're all family and we're here for you and we're pedaling together. And starting my day that way, where it's not just me telling me that, but actually being in a community that's telling me that, um, even if it's related to exercise, it, it carries me through my day where I'm like, yeah, I am a boss, you know, or I'll remember, you know, one, one liner that they'll say, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. And it resonates with me. So finding a community that I resonate with and then it being available to me at my wee hour of the morning, that's a critical part, I think, of, of what's what keeps me sane through the hard times. Um, the other thing though, is really just a change in the expectations of who I am. Theo and I have had chats about this on Twitter where I think when this all started, I thought I could be a quote unquote, stay at home mom caring for everyone and an executive VP at NPR running a media organization of engineers 50 plus and a daughter and run side hustles and contribute to periodicals and blog posts and be on podcasts. And the reality is, is I can't do those things. Like my vision of who that person was is not achievable. So I had to adjust. I had to, you know, A, make time for myself so that I, like that's my self-care moment in the morning, but then also just change my perspective on what is possible, what is success, Right. What what will I feel good about at the end of the day? And that's really where that work life harmony came in. It's like it's more like a flywheel than a set of scales. It's less about 50 50 and more about what fulfills me in my day that will fulfill me, you know, that will let me be fulfilled when I'm with my children. And what can I do with my kids that will fulfill me so that when I'm going to work, I'm not feeling guilty and upset. Um, but I think that flywheel concept is pretty, pretty unique and important. I need to learn from you one day. I don't think I'm quite there yet. I'm still trying to be <laughs> the line cook, the maid, the yeah, teacher. The the, I mean, yeah. oh my God, I'm losing count. And, um, yeah. and, and, and for those listeners who follow us on social media, you probably see a lot of the agony. Um, my ways of coping, which is baking, which is probably not the best. I feel like I'm gaining weight. I'm definitely gaining weight. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get to that, that sense of, of fulfillment that you're in Noel. So I'm, I'm far away streets behind you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I actually think, um, one of the things that's interesting is the mindset, right? Like. I think you you probably don't give yourself enough credit, but I do think you have this mindset, or at least it comes across in like the content that you share, that like we're okay, you know, like that even if it all feels nutty and you know we feel incapable in in certain moments of the day, um, like having this sense of optimism and having this sense of like even me not being okay and sharing that with people and that that helps them understand that they're not alone. That there's a there's almost a sense of optimism in that level of you know like yeah we're all failing but at least we're failing together. Um, I've, I it just makes it it doesn't make me sad it makes me happy but I think that's part of my mindset that when I when I experience things I instantly see the good in them and that I make a conscious mental choice to see the 
the positive part of it. Um, and, and I think when you don't have that habit, that mental discipline, it's very easy to see, you know, like one morning I was just not feeling up to it and thinking about all oh, like, oh my, how can I show up like this every day indefinitely? <laughs> and, um, and I, I was like, I could see how easy it would be to just stay in bed, how easy it would be to let that kind of dark feeling of despair or inadequacy like draw me in and cover me like a warm blanket um and so i felt myself have this conscious like conscious shift of attention towards what can i do how can i help what can i build but that's definitely something that i've honed over my whole career um and and my personal life included but yeah i think that's a big part of what makes it possible Need to remember that conscious mental choice. We we need to make that. I, I think there are certain people on uh, in our communities that you know I I look to and it helps, right? Little things that helps. I, I look at what you post, it helps. I look at what Annie Annie Parker she's she posts this eleven second every morning when she wakes up in Australia, and this oh, that's eleven cool. seconds of like the waves, the beach, or something that's pretty that she took a video of. And I've gotten to, I've gotten used to like, look for it every night because I'm a night owl. So, so every time when she posts, it's like, oh, okay. All right. This is a good way to end my day. But, but it's, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, I, I remember the one time that almost broke me was two, two weeks ago recently when, um, I, I try to go to the grocery store. I, I do it very infrequently now because of the circumstances and I went there and there was a long line go around the block and I couldn't I couldn't do it because I I had to come back for a meeting and so I came home 10 minutes later and the kids looked at me and I saw the look in their face like oh my god what happened where is our food because the fridge was oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and that moment almost broke me it, it's like I am. A, I felt like a complete failure because I couldn't get to the store early enough because I have work to do and I couldn't get the food home. And I mean, the kids didn't starve. We had leftovers, but still, it, it, it it's those little things that I, I think it it changes you too, right? Everything that we're going through, it changes you. It makes you appreciate the things that you have. It makes you appreciate the environment that we're in. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I guess <laughs> that's what we're gonna say. Um, so speaking of, um, which, which is really, really interesting, as we're going through all these changes, we are all self-isolating. The one thing that has changed is, I think, if we look at personal relationships or even business relationships, we're using our voice much more, right? We are, we're still texting, we're still emailing, but um, I see more people online now doing face-to-face -face meetings than I used to. I actually get more phone calls than I used to. Um, it's almost like we're going back to, oh, let's go back to the rudimentary of voice. And so if we look at the technical side of it, voice industry, um, as much progress as it seems like we have made, it's still very, very new, right? It's only been a few years that, you know, we have all these virtual assistants at home that um, we are trying to use it in different ways. We're using it to set alarms, we're using it to play music, um, whether or not it's successful, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, but it's still still very early though. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of things that we can do with it um, that expand beyond 
currently how consumers use it. So I'm curious to know, since you are embedded in, in that industry, what are some of the things that you find most promising? So uh, promising is, is interesting because it takes me two ways. One is like, what are we doing? What's possible today that we're just not even taking advantage of? And then what does 2030 look like, right? What are the future options? Um, and, and so today I have kind of this forward looking view of voice because I have two people that need voice to, to operate in the world. So my dad being cognitively impaired um, he's basically like Dory. He can't, he has very little short-term memory. So he doesn't know what day it is or what time it is or the news or anything. And now, and so now he's in the habit of writing things down every morning. And so he'll listen to his flash briefing and he'll write it in his journal so that he can read the next morning, like all the things that were done. Um, so he's got his own mechanisms, but he's also older. And so he doesn't have the ability to just like oh, use a smartphone or even a computer. He has neither of these. I mean, he owns them, but he can't use them anymore. And so my view, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out how do I create opportunity for him to get closer to the world, especially now he is socially isolated. I don't really let him, you know, come up and hang out with the kids because I'm just worried constantly. Like if he gets sick, it could be very bad for him. So I'm overprotective like a mama bear. <laughs> Um, so now I'm like, how do I create a much more engaged experience? So some of the promise is literally in, you know, I think we all, uh, you might be familiar with um, Heidi, uh, who talks a lot, right, about elder care. And when I heard her speak, I'm like, oh, yeah, we are the same. I deal with the same thing. How do we make like uh, this darn skill situation? We have so many skills that are useful to people that they have no idea how to find them. They don't, they can't organically in their mind think of the right things naturally that would invoke them. And so I look forward to the day, the promise of like the Alexa, Google, Bixby's of the world, creating a contextual understanding of what I want and mapping it to what I need um, and really exposing all the work. Like I spent four years telling everyone I knew, build skills, build engaging skills, build skills you know based on your own life experience and they've done that but the sad thing is is that my dad can't find those there's no way for him to even know what to do so it's kind of you know it's good the promise is there we can do it the disadvantage is you know and this and the skills i think are even there um some of them <laughs> but the discoverability has been a problem since day one on alexa and i I just don't know, you know, unfortunately, it's one of those things, like if you're gaining 100,000 users a month, are you going to be that worried about discoverability of a feature set like this? But I, I feel like it's a critical part of the experience. So when I build a skill for my dad, which I do now, so now he can ask the birthday of some, like someone he cares about. So like all of his family and his friends, we can be like, what day is today? And then he'll, he can ask, you know, his birthday skill, whether or not it's someone's birthday or who the next birthday is, so that he doesn't forget these things that his short-term memory typically would, you know, if he finds out today that it's tomorrow, he'd forget by tomorrow. So how do, I can create a skill that does that, but it's super hard for me to get anyone else on the planet to know that that exists and, and help more people. And I think that's, that's certainly a promise, but something that we need to solve as an industry to really realize it. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling 
to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I think one of the things about um, the the applications within voice, you know, not having that visual, even if you've got, you know, the Echo Show and a device that has a screen, you're not looking at it the same way as you are your phone. You can't just like sit there and sort of dive into a rabbit hole of applications right. and skills. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think voice just magnifies. One of the other things we talk a lot about is um, this idea about inclusiveness in technology. And it's it's oh, yeah. driven, it's, um, you know, cultural and community. Um, even the way that you speak, right? So, so Theo often talks about this idea of a multilingual household, and I've heard this from many others. And even in our family, it's like my voice tends to be picked up by the devices much more than my kids or my wife. And so, you know, we, we have this issue with multilingual households. We have, you know, entire continents like Africa with several thousand languages that aren't really even perceptible from these devices. So how do we, you know, as, as we look at the the language support on these devices alone and, and tonality and all of these like basic things that eventually we'll get to, hopefully. How do we drive more inclusion into voice? Yeah, this is a tough one because it, it unfortunately stems from like corporate intention, right? So silos are created, silos like Alexa, silos like Bixby, silos like Google, they are all doing the same thing. They are investing millions and billions of dollars into data collection for language models. Now, Alexa already did that work, right? But they're not gonna give that to Google, you know? So instead of us all creating a new baseline of like, hey, all of us know US, Alexa built it already, everyone gets US. Now you can go and work on the next thing and you can evolve the next language. It's very, I guess, utopian, right? That I would think we'd be willing to share our data so that we wouldn't waste. You know how many resources Google would have had to waste to create Google Assistant to match and then exceed, right? Some of the functionality of Alexa. Like those are the same skills, the same thing. We're building the same thing just in duplicate. And now Bixby and other NLUs are doing the exact same thing. I go into companies or I used to go into companies and, and they would tell me how they were building their own NLU. And I would, and there was a sense of like, of course, ownership and, you know, their ego was all wrapped up in it. Like I am building an NLU and I would try it as a Microsoft evangelist at that time, I would try to encourage them to look at the baselines, the commoditized models that AI provides and start there so that you're not wasting two years building against something that's already done. And English is one of those, but even English, German, there's like five languages they're commoditized now, like that NLU is done. So I think the answer to like, how do we do more? is like, how do we get companies you know, like Amazon and Google, like, A, how do we get them to work together? Maybe they never will, I don't know. I, I try not to be pessimistic about it. But the next best thing is open data sets. How do I collect that information? And then as a company or maybe a nonprofit, be willing to collect that data and give it to a company like Amazon or Google, or give it to both of them with the agreement that, right? Like this is even true, we're talking about languages, but it's even true for, you know, computer vision and medical data sets. You know how many hospitals have data sets that if we combined them, we could solve incredible problems, but because they all think their data set is their value as a hospital, 
they won't share it with other people. Um, it's just this, you know, it's state of mind instead of ours. And as I watch this, of course, it's a little bit heartbreaking. Even things like movies, I, I'll tell you the, the inter, uh, an interview question I had when I first joined the Alexa team, they asked me like, what would you do? If you could do anything in voice, what would you do? And, and this still is today though, an app has been created to solve for this, but not a voice app. But I would say, I said, I wish as a mom, when I went to go buy a movie, I could check every movie provider that I could buy from and see if I had already bought it. And because at that, like, I would love to be able to say, hey, buy Toy Story 4. But it would be like, hey, you know, you already got that on Prime Video. Or you already bought it on Hulu or you are, right? And somebody would know that I had already done that and avoid it. Now, there's a, a cool app called Movies Anywhere. It used to be Disney Movies Anywhere. And it combines all of you know, the saddest thing was when I connected all those accounts, I have four copies of Despicable Me. <laughs> and I have three copies of Toy Story, two copies. So I obviously did not know that I had already bought it or a child bought it, right? Um, anyway, it's just, these are the types of use cases that like, if we had this shared common, like if we were not so worried about owning the data set, like Netflix owns their data set and you know, again, when it goes to hospitals or language data sets, how do we create a world that we're willing to share this for the greater good? And that's where AI, I always tag my posts with AI for good, because I feel like without that mental shift to, you don't do it for the money, we'll get money because it's a good feature. <laughs> but we're not motivated by that revenue. We're motivated by the fact that we're going to solve this problem for people. That more companies would actually think in the long term that what's best for their customers and what's best for society would be better for them. And it's, you know, I think that's the mindful leadership concept, right? Like we need more people like that higher in an org. We're very much being, um, we're kind of the victims of like a 1980s, 90s leadership mentality where it's very much like, Wolf of Wall Street or whatever, you know, go, 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 transaction, transaction, get the next deal and less about, which I, I love about Gen Z as a stereotype, right? This social action motivated generation. I think we're all that way, or at least I'm that way. And, um, but having like a person in a position of power within a company that thinks like that, that I don't see every day. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's kind of like you know a bank putting me or you know s someone like me uh, as a as a CEO uh, and somehow expecting um, me to focus on profits. It just it wouldn't right. happen. Right. Uh, so so it's you know when when you talk about you know this idea of doing something that leads from one set of technologies to another and, and companies sort of building off of each other that. Is exactly the sort of the, the short sightedness that we have even in technology providers, and so um, that's that is a whole like thread we could pull on. But uh, it's it's fascinating to to think about the things that we could truly solve if we just work better together. Yeah, and I actually tried to be part of projects that would demonstrate it, just so that companies could see the value. Where, like last year, I worked at Abbey Road, and a bunch of people that would never get in the same room. You know, music producers, DJs, musicians and data scientists and tried to solve for problems like that or at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, like combining you know, data scientists with curators who were like, no, 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 we're not machine or learning anything with art. Like art cannot be automated, um, but bringing them together and seeing like, how do, how do we break these perceptions of these you know, siloed worlds where we don't share ideas, even across industries. 
And it's still very much, you know, like we walked out of there and I, yeah, seven people were convinced that we could do it. <laughs> but now I have, you know, seven billion to go. <laughs> It, it's interesting. We actually talked a little bit about that um, lately too. If we take a step back, look at, for example, Microsoft and how they have transitioned through the last 20, 30 years, we see that shift, right? And and I think like you, to your point, it starts from the leadership level is when they, when they decide being customer centric, being more human, more attuned to the needs of the world. And then you find people around you surround yourself with that and that's when you start the momentum and try to change a company but that's one company out of that's right that's right but he it is and it's a good example but again in his case he has like this just old guard that is in his company that no matter what you know i i also was enamored by his vision of the world and his concept on democratized ai and like we're building this so that anyone can build a model, but more importantly, we're going to fund companies that are building models for good and models for social action and, you know, earth, you know, getting a better earth and all of these things. I was like, this is great. But then you get into an organization and you realize like a lot of people there have been there 20 plus years. And so they don't necessarily uphold the same values of this single CEO. And, you know, I saw a picture of him on the cover, I think of Business Week, where he had like a halo and wings and like, you know, and that's true to a degree. It's certainly inspiring to a technologist like myself, but to turn a ship, he's done it a little bit, but really can an individual engineer in a company like Microsoft pull the chain on a model that's going to production, that's gonna generate billions of dollars for them and then say, no, this isn't ethically right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that, you know, like that I'm not sure that he could even know whether or not that single engineer would feel empowered in that moment because it's just it's not just him. So, yeah, I think a, we just need a whole new generation of leaders that think this way um, to be able to get into positions of power. Unfortunately, the keys to that level of held by those you know, who don't think this way. And that is a challenge for me. Shall we dare say a little bit homogeneous as well? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, 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 it takes time. It's going to take a lot of time to change. Um, it, in a way, when I, when I look at the kids, right, I think uh, between all three of us, our, our children are fairly similar age. Um, I, I, see, I see different ways that they're thinking that they would challenge. The status quo right my seven-year-old she she is fearless i i will feel a little worried about you know the boys that she's gonna be um befriending in in the future <laughs> but she would ask like things that just make sense right she'll be like well but mom how come we still don't have a woman president why is it that we don't have it or you know there will be things i remember last year um my son came back and she's like and he and he said, my son is 10 and he said, oh, mom, uh, mommy, you know, there are like three moms that, you know, are going to sign up for chaperones for, for their future. And my daughter was like, why just mommy? What happens to the dad? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like think, things like that, that just comes out from her mouth. Like, wow, good for you. Like, I, I, I hope that, you know, through the work that we do, through what we tell the kids that we can instill that sense 
the change in them that hopefully in 20 years time, ouch, um, we'll see something yeah. different. Um, so along the theme of what you just talked about, AI for good, um, before the pandemic, there's always, there's endless articles about, oh, you know, AI is going to take over the world, machines are going to take over the world, humanity is doomed, we need to stop everything, it's, it's, <laughs> the sky is falling. Now, through the last two months, we have seen a lot more stories about using technology for good, about um, hospitals taking these devices in to help the patients spend the last moments with their family. And, and a screen is not just a screen. An iPad is not just an iPad. It, it turns from a set of circuit boards with a device to something that actually connects people, right? My kids use FaceTime every morning to connect with my parents. So we see a lot more of that. How do we make sure, or how can we help that narrative to keep going? Because it is good grounds that we gain. And I think with every technology is important to stress the goodness of what we can do with it too, so we can keep evolving, right? So how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's kind of the platform, why I chose the platform. I mean, I in my history, I, I'm not an AI person per se. I'm not a machine learning engineer. I do not have a PhD, though I, I love PhD owner owning people, <laughs> but I don't have one. I don't really want one either. Um, but I, I'm not really the classic kind of model of a research scientist that would take on this mantle. However, as I began to do work with Alexa and with Microsoft and started seeing the way how easy it was to make bad choices um, and how deliberate some, these companies and these teams were in making good choices and that none of that was visible. Um, and, and I don't think any of it, like none of it's secret sauce, none of it, you know, it's just like how empowered do your engineers feel or how, you know, how do you make sure that there's a conversation that's being had about the ethical implications of the work that you're doing? Are your engineers ethically trained? Which we found out, no, hardly any of the engineers we have are ethically trained. So I feel like part of it is just being willing to say out loud and have an opinion about it um, and share it. So there's so many people doing good work. It's almost like I wish everyone, like people, it's like I use this term, uh, citizen data scientists. Like we're all data scientists. We're all collecting data. It's just like citizen journalists. As soon as we all get a phone, we all have the ability to take a picture and tell a story. Um, I feel like it's our responsibility to, if we are in a world that has examples or if we get an idea, we should talk about it. And so many people are afraid to share their perspective and their voice because they have, I guess you'd call it imposter syndrome or they, they don't feel like they have a valid, like how, why would I contribute? Why would my view of this be important? And these are like product owners, pro project managers, um, people that are not necessarily fingers on keyboard, you know, engineers, but have a very real understanding of what's happening. If anything, some of them hold the glue together, <laughs> you know, hold these teams together. They're the glue to the the model development process or the data um, ingestion or the data collection process. And they're not really, you know, I don't, I just don't feel like they feel empowered that they can tell the positive stories of what's happening. So, so that's why I do what I do. And I say what I say, because I want more people to be like, well, I mean, if Noelle can talk about it, I certainly could talk about it. And then also, you know, try and create a mechanism for me to help and, and inspire and encourage people through like mentorship or coaching. Like, how do I sit with someone one-on-one -on -one or one-on-20 -on and be like, no, you can tell your story. It is important. But I do think it's like old school marketing. 
you know, just say it out loud. Um, one of the interesting things about like Microsoft and even Amazon is their, e you know, evangelism is not a core line of business. As a matter of fact, I think it has to defend itself every year. Um, in one in Microsoft's case, they eliminated the organization entirely. Uh, and I think that's just a challenge because it's not, we're not evangelizing to just the engineers that are going to become employees one day. We are creating the story in the minds of everyone in the minds of my children in the you know in the career days that i do and in the you know sessions that i do in high schools and the sessions that i do in college we're changing people's perspective of what's possible and without them even hearing about the we saved this endangered species with ai or we you know we sat we solved like this person had diabetes who didn't know it but because they stood on this scale and it scanned their feet they detected something that no human eye could detect and they found out before you know bad things happened like without those stories and, and sharing those stories and i think it can't or at least i appreciate it when it's not just a company saying those stories right that the people that are impacted by it like me with my dad i think it's important that i say like oh my gosh this tech helped me and sometimes it's microsoft tech sometimes it's amazon tech sometimes it's google and sometimes it's a tech i hacked together myself <laughs> but yeah i think we need to talk more we need to talk more. We need more you. And I, I so remember, <laughs> we need more Noels. We need more Noel Dust. But um, I, I'll be honest, that was actually, you made such an impression when you were on stage. And I remember the story that you told, you were telling the story. It was personal, but it was real, it's authentic. And it made me believe. And we need more of those stories, especially now more than ever. Um, yeah, and yeah, I agree. So, but, but thank you so much for joining us today. It's, uh, I, I can keep going and going and going and hopefully next time we can actually do it in person over coffee. Um, yes. we'll get there eventually. Um, but until <laughs> then, thank you so much for joining us today, Noel. And thank you so much for listening to a new episode of one vision. Hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. Mm -hmm.